You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. We honor many sources of wisdom in our UU faith tradition. The source of this morning's wisdom story is a picture book. But I can't very well tell a picture book from the chancel, so I altered the text a little bit. Um, I bet that many of my young friends have heard this story before. It's called Strictly No Elephants. The trouble with having a tiny elephant for a pet is that you never quite fit in. No one else has an elephant. Every day, I take my elephant for a walk. His is a very thoughtful sort of walk. He doesn't like the cracks in the sidewalk much. I always go back and help him over. That's what friends do, lift each other over the cracks. Today, I'm walking my tiny elephant to house number 17. It's pet club day, and everyone will be there. Come on, there's a good boy. I coax him the last few feet. It'll be fine. When I look up, there's a sign on the door. Strictly no elephants. I am heartbroken. My tiny elephant quickly leads me back to the sidewalk, never minding the cracks. That's what friends do. Brave the scary things for you. On a bench on the side of the street, there sits a girl with a tiny skunk on a leash. She sees us approaching. Did you try to go to the pet club meeting too? The girl asks. Yes, I say, but they don't allow elephants. The sign didn't mention skunks, the girl says, but they don't want us to play with them either. They don't know any better, I tell her. He doesn't stink, the girl adds. No, he doesn't, I agree. What if, what if we start our own club? Come along, I say, making certain that my tiny elephant follows me. Because that's what friends do. Never leave anyone behind. So, we made some new friends. A tiny giraffe. A tiny armadillo. A tiny hedgehog. A tiny bat. A tiny penguin. And all their tiny human friends. As we walk through the town, we come across a huge clearing with a huge treehouse and a tire swing. We can play here, one of our new friends says, all of us. So we paint our own sign for the treehouse door. We write, strictly no strangers. But we scribble that out. We write, strictly no spoil sports. We cross that out too. We write, all are welcome. You're welcome, too. My tiny elephant will give you directions if you need them. Because that's what friends do. The end. 
It has been a rough couple of weeks, yeah? A gloating president flaunts his acquittal as vindication, dupes our system of checks and balances once again and proclaims himself as the real defender of democracy. The beginning of some kind of clarity and focus for a viable candidate to oppose Trump seemed to fizzle before our eyes as the Iowa caucus collapsed under the weight of archaic structures and an app. Antarctica reached 69 degrees yesterday, an astounding new low in record high temperatures. Four federal prosecutors resigned when they were ordered to reduce their sentencing recommendations for one of our president's friends, convicted of lying and obstructing Congress. And now he tells us he has every right to intervene in federal criminal cases. Arthur Brooks quoted the Sermon on the Mount at the prayer breakfast in Washington, DC, saying, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Brooks called for a time of reconciliation and new thinking. And then our president got up on the stand and proceeded to disagree with that message. Okay, so he's going to disagree with Jesus Christ and one of the foundational pillars of Christian theology. All right then, all of this, all of this is piled on top of the slights, the obstacles, and the horrors of everyday living, where students of color do not receive the culturally grounded and excellent education they deserve in Minnesota, where hate crimes are on the rise in our nation, where people are scrambling from one gig to the next in our gig economy, trying to make ends meet, where people are mourning the death of their loved ones, where immigrants are vilified and hunted down, where social media amplifies the best and the absolute worst of us. Everything is falling apart. This past Monday, I was low. I did my morning spiritual practices. I walked in the woods with my dog, which didn't help much, mainly because she decided to take off for a half an hour and wouldn't come back to me. <laughs> Still, things that usually help weren't helping. So it's on days like these, that I have to think outside the box a little bit. So I decided to sit myself down and watch an action hero. Yes, you heard me, an action hero. So I sat down to my all-time favorite, the Black Panther. Yes! OK, some people have actually seen it. Hallelujah. Seth hasn't, and I couldn't believe that. He told me that. so. If you haven't seen it, don't worry, I'm going to take you with me. I don't want to tell you how many times I have watched that movie, but it's a lot. 
I love the Afro-centered worldview. I love the look and feel of Wakanda, a hidden place untouched by Western colonial devastation. It is unplundered, its chain of tradition unbroken, its cultural heritage is fully realized, and its technological achievements are astounding, powered by the otherworldly gift of vibranium, that metal that is fantastically strong and miraculously supple. It stops bullets, it heals spines, and powers the world of Wakanda. This place, Wakanda, is rooted in the vital relationship and dialogue with the ancestors. It is a visceral and real-time communication between the dead and the living, informing the Wakandan present and grappling with choices for the future. And there's a central question introduced from the very beginning of the movie. Can this flourishing society of African power and agency be shared with the world, and in particular, nations and communities of color, and still maintain its own strength and vitality? Or does Wakanda need to stay hidden from all in order to survive the corrosive evils of oppression that plague the rest of the world? The film does not sugarcoat the intentional cultural and economic deprivations visited on countries and communities of color. So the question crackles with authenticity throughout the entire storyline, and we really don't know what the answer should be. Engage in a big way or stay hidden. Now, when Eric Stevens the antagonist comes onto the scene, the question becomes more than philosophical repartee. It is a matter of life and death for Wakanda and the world at large. You see, Eric is a product of the great injustices visited on POCI folk of this world and the isolationism of Wakanda. You see, Eric was left behind by the Wakandan to fend for himself on the streets of L.A. without his American mother or his father, a Wakandan prince. It was a choice of the former king made in order to protect the secret of Wakanda's existence and its power. Eric is as vicious as the world he has encountered in his life, and yet he is absolutely relatable. We understand why he does what he does. We empathize with him. He has been brutalized, and his spirit has been tortured. Through careful and unfaltering planning and killing, Eric makes his way to Wakanda seething with anger and seeking revenge. He challenges T'Challa, the Black Panther, for the throne. And Eric has as much right to be the Wakand to, to the Wakandan throne as the Black Panther because he is of royal lineage. So after a fierce and bloody fight, Eric wins. Brutality wins. 
and everyone is devastated. They're disoriented. Eric demands to be crowned king and perverts the cultural and institutional norms to take and maintain a stranglehold on power. He destroys the garden of vibranium by which the people maintain their relationship with the ancestors and savages anyone who gets in his way. With vibranium in his back pocket, Eric seeks to overthrow the world's existing governments, correct the historical error and injustice of white domination, and create a Wakandan empire. Now, the Wakandans are divided. Some want to join Eric and take the fight to the outside world, while others, although sympathetic to Eric's wishes to redress the oppression of the world's black people, view his methods as contrary to their way of life, their values, and the averse of white radicalism that is in real life power now. Everything is falling apart. Some of the exchanges and scenes were eerie to watch as I thought about the ways our institutions have been manipulated by a bully to capitalize on his power. Many of the exchanges between the characters or discussions I'm having with my friends about justice, the political process, serving institutions or saving the country, and how to move forward when we are in such despair. Knowing that I was working with this month's theme, Breaking Down and Building Up, Meg Riley gifted me with an essay called Radical Hope in revolting times. First off, I love the title. Radical hope in revolting times. Second, I love it because it is co-authored by the president of our board of trustees, Brianna French. It is written for and by people of color, and yet they write, it is a framework that is flexible enough to be adapted for other contexts. This essay is breathing hope into my being right now. Not just hope, but radical hope. And after talking with Brianna, I share it with you today with her permission. In it, Brianna and her fellow colleagues posit that our psychological well-being, our ability to continue on particularly in troubled times, and particularly for communities of color, is connected to our expressions and ability to hope. But hope based on individual determination and efforts is not enough. This is the hope most often studied and espoused by Western traditions. But what happens when individual efforts are not enough? When the thresholds are so steep and the odds so stacked against us. Hope as an individual enterprise collapses under the weight of too many challenges and upheaval. We are facing a crisis of, as a society because we are defining hope as an individual asset. 
Communities of color have understood from the beginning that there is no way to individualize hope and survive. The only way to combat the myriad of challenges is to practice hope as a collective enterprise. What makes hope radical and differentiates it from more traditional and Western psychological applications of hope is, and I quote, its focus on a commitment and courage to achieve a vision involving new forms of collective flourishing. Hope, they say, is collectivity. Radical hope involves, quote, the steadfast belief in the collective capacity contained within communities of color to heal and transform oppressive forces into a better future, despite the overwhelming odds. Radical hope is a collective enterprise. Now, there are two component parts to radical hope, collective memory and faith and agency. So if you were to envision an axis, an axis with collective memory being the horizontal bar that connects the past to the present, the present to the future, and the future back again to the past, the vertical arm of the axis would be faith and agency. And it moves between the collective orientation and the individual orientation. Individuals feed the collective, and the collective feeds the individual. Now, in the Black Panther, radical hope was in full display as the characters engaged in the work of collective memory. The characters talk with their ancestors. And they didn't just say sweet things or pray for strength. They argued with them. T'Challa, who miraculously survives the death challenge with Eric, of course, because he is an action hero, builds radical hope from the love and courage the ancestors had lived in the past and offered forward. But he also wrestles with their choices and their actions. At one point, T'Challa says to his dead father, you were wrong. We were wrong. I must right these wrongs. Collective memory, ancestral relationship is such a rich part of black culture. I love when my friends begin a workshop or center us before a march by sharing their ancestry. They are evoking collective memory by which we all draw strength and courage and envision something new through our actions. I've begun to talk to my ancestors. I talk to my dead mother. I argue with her. I ask her to guide me and help me to live with integrity but I hope to expand this very real dialogue to a broader constellation of forebearers, like my great uncle, Grant Wood, who lived as a gay man in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, holding art salons and camps for children who, to teach them to paint, who bucked 
the growing rage of abstract art and painted the land and the people of his heart, including the American Gothic. Church is an exercise in collective memory. We are standing on the shoulders of people who hid themselves on, in, on car floors in order to join with Martin Luther King Jr. and the march from Selma to Montgomery for some 50 odd years ago. We are in the company of Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a black abolitionist, suffragist, author, and Unitarian who made an incredible impact on issues of slavery and women's rights through her writing and her speaking. We are arguing with Ralph Waldo Emerson who gave us an incredible framework of how to understand the holy and our access to the divine while arguing with him about his views on the superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race. Our radical hope is empowered by revisiting, remembering, and understanding our ancestry and inviting that dialogue of collective memory to inform our vision for the future a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-abled, multi-generational community that comes together in hope, resilience, and liberation. As a church, we are communities within a community. We will need different things at different times from one another. We will need to caucus with folks that share the same life experiences as our own, in this world of intersecting oppressions. We will need to caucus in order to transform the racism, the ableism, the gender biases alive in our very own DNA. But we will also promise to show up for one another, to show up together as a unified church body, as a church. As the essay states, Revisiting, remembering, and understanding past social actions and victories provide people radical hope. It reminds them that they can survive revolting times and that they can make decisions that change the tide. The other access of radical hope is faith and agency. We come together as people and share a faith that says, faith must be connected to action. This is our theological ninja move, people. This is universalism, faith and agency. We understand that we are building on the principles of our forebearers who said the kingdom of God is not some fairyland that you go to after you die. The kingdom of God is here and now, and we act to bring heaven to earth. This is our work as co-creators with the divine within, among, and beyond. We are not here just to endure this life, but to joyfully engage our loves, our passions, our wounds, our connections, our work for justice to make a better world. 
The social gospel movement of the late 1800s is our birthright. This idea that it's not enough to just pray for a better world, we are here to make a better world. This is faith and agency. Our esteemed Reverend Richard Gilbert once wrote, it is spiritually exhilarating to realize that in our small efforts, we are part of a great living stream of reformers, a great cloud of witnesses who seek to create the beloved community of earth, who seek to place the stubborn ounces of our weight on the side of justice. We are living in revolting times. And just like my favorite action hero movie, the battle is real, overwhelming, excruciating, and tenuous. We don't know how it's all going to turn out. But the answer is not to retreat into our shells, into our privileges, whatever they may be, not to withdraw in despair. The antidote is some super powerful vibranium of our own, radical hope, the collectivity of hope. As R.D.G. Kelly states and quoted in the essay, now is the time to envision and make visible a new society, a peaceful, cooperative, loving world without poverty and oppression limited only by our imaginations. Friends, join the church of radical hope. Join me in appreciation and gratitude for the incredible leaders we walk beside right now, like Brianna French. Take time to talk with your ancestors, the ones who strengthen you and the ones that you are arguing with. Share those conversations with one another. Ground yourself and one another in the history and the theology of universalism. Lend your hands, your hearts, your minds, the stubborn ounces of your weight on the side of justice. In the words of my favorite action hero, the Black Panther, we will no longer work from the shadows. We cannot. We will not. We will work to be an example of how we, as siblings on this earth, should treat each other. Now, more than ever, the illusions of our divisions threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges and the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. May it be so, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.